Good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today's installment of our Refocus series is going to look at the subject of dedication. How much of our lives are really and completely committed to God? And have we learned the outcome of recognizing God's will in our lives by renewing our mind apart from the world's values and patterns? Well, thanks for joining us this morning as we address these questions and more in our effort to refocus our lives according to God's will. There's been a change in the realm of telecommunications over the past probably decade. Uh, It used to be that when you signed up for a cable provider or internet service or even cellular service, that you would have to sign up for an annual contract. Remember those days? That's not how it works anymore. In fact, increasingly, almost all providers now have the option that you go month by month. And they advertise it this way. They say you can cancel at any time. Does that feel good, right? No strings attached. You use it only as long as it's a benefit to you. Uh, there's, there's really no harm for feeling that you're locked in or that this um, draconian kind of commitment to have to pay even if the service is bad. No, as long as it serves you, you can stay with them and feel free. Feel free to cancel at any time. As long as I'm happy with it, I'll stay. As long as it doesn't cost me too much, no problem. As long as I can cancel at any time, I'll give it a try. The problem is this perspective from our culture has crept into the church. I'm not sure even if you'd be aware of it. I think it happens unconsciously. The way that we carry the values of the world and then seem to apply them to our faith. We run the risk of defining our church experience and even our commitment to God by the values of the world that come from our preferences. So we say, well, I'll go to church so long as the service is to my liking or as long as the music fits my desires for the kind of music that I want to hear. None of them hymns or none of those praise songs. All I want is hymns. Or maybe if the preacher doesn't offend my sensibilities or put any pressure on me to, you know, volunteer for anything, God forbid. Right. I'll I'll give it a try. I'll stay committed to Jesus as long as I can have it my way. So long as there's no pressure. Kyle Eidemann, pastor and author, wrote a book called Not a Fan. Um, He asks a poignant question here that relates to this because there is a great difference between somebody who's just a fan as opposed to somebody who's actually a follower. He asked this question. Has following Jesus cost you anything? I don't mean for that to be a rhetorical question. Take a moment, jot it down. What following Jesus has really cost you? How has following Jesus interfered with your life? If we look back to the earliest Christians... Those who followed Jesus from the very start and examined their lives, we will see there is really a stark contrast between the consumerism that has really characterized the faith for the world you and I live in today, as opposed for what they were willing to lay down for the hope of following the resurrected king. 
Eidelman continues with this. He says, most of us don't mind Jesus making some minor changes in our lives, but Jesus wants to turn our whole lives upside down. Fans don't mind doing a little touch-up work, but Jesus wants a complete renovation. Fans come to Jesus thinking it's just a tune-up, but Jesus wants a complete overhaul. Fans think that a little makeup is fine, but Jesus is thinking makeover. Fans think a little decorating is required, but Jesus wants a complete remodel. Fans want Jesus to inspire them, but Jesus wants to interfere with our lives. I think that we need to use wisdom as we're in a series called Refocus for the explicit purpose of trying to make sure we give our attention to understanding the will of God in our lives. How do, how do you know what his will is? How are you able to tell that which God would desire in your life as opposed to simply what you would want in your life? Because without being careful, without giving discernment and intentionality to this, what we will do is by default follow in step with the current of our culture that wants you to have it your way. Whatever you want is fine. But Jesus wants to come in and shake things up In fact, he wants to have not just a part of you, he wants to have all of you. I'm so thankful for Sandy's illustration this morning. How much of the guts do you leave in the pumpkin, Sandy? You you take all of the nastiness out, right? You take it all out and you replace it with the light that then shines forth. As we're studying refocus For this Sunday, the theme is going to be that of dedication. We're going to be in the book of Romans. If you brought your Bibles, uh, I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 12. We're going to look through two very short verses. These verses, though, they need to fall in the top 10 most important verses in the New Testament. So we're dealing with really potent stuff this morning. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Page 1616 in your pew Bibles. I want to invite you to follow along as we read these words Paul has to say to the church in Rome. Paul writes in verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Two very short verses here. And as I went through them this week, uh, it occurred to me uh, that one of the more helpful ways that we can understand when we see commands of God can be played out in this particular verse because there's a construction that follows in Romans 12, 1 and 2 that you don't find everywhere. Um, it, it is a if-then construction. If you, if you were to do this... <coughs> Then this will happen. I want to make sure everybody connects the outcome of God's promise here with our obedience from verse 2. He says, then, did you find it? Verse 2, right in the middle. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, perfect, and pleasing will. 
Well, if you take the contrapositive of that, if, if you reverse the statements, it would sound a little something like this. Make sure that you conform to the pattern of this world. Don't change. Don't do anything with your minds. And then you will be unable to discern what God's will is. Do you see how that's true as well? If there is no response to the follower of Jesus Christ, if you simply become a fan, if there is no transformation that goes on in your life, if you never work towards understanding in your mind what God's truth is, you will be continually left in the dark when it comes to God's will. I mean, it's, it's roll the dice. Who knows? Who knows what God's will is for my life? I can't test what it is. I certainly can't approve what it is. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to look into this text to find out what are those primary conditions that Paul gives to the church in Rome that will help us today. Because if there was ever a time that we need to know God's will, it is these days that we live in. Amen? All right, I have a a few observations for us to work through. Um, The first right at the top is that dedication to God is propelled by God's mercy. This is where we have to start. If we are going to find that the outcome of understanding God's will, that we would know what it is in our life, that you won't have a big question mark hanging over your head when it comes to God's will, it begins in your heart. By recognizing the mercy of God. Look with me again in verse 1. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Probably up until this week. And I've read this passage hundreds of times. I have always understood Paul's therefore at the beginning of chapter 12 as referencing the entirety of the book of Romans. Chapter 1 through chapter 11, he's gone through this um, amazing teaching of God's justifying grace in our lives. And then he starts in chapter 12, you know, like, now that I've said all that, therefore. But I don't think that's right. I think instead the therefore is not talking about the extended context of Romans, I think he's talking about the immediate context of Romans. And if you, if you go with me on this, let me draw you back into chapter 11, because I want you to see how mercy is not something that's scattered throughout the book, even though you can find it. Instead, Paul is talking about something very specific. Your surrendering of your body as a, as a living sacrifice is dependent on a specific kind of mercy that comes from God. Look with me back in chapter 11, starting in verse 28. He says, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. What now? (laughs) Who are we talking about? So let me set the stage here for you a little bit. One of the major issues in Paul's day was the division that was happening between Jew and Gentile. And that without the careful understanding that God's grace is availed to all, you would have ended up with two different churches. And yet the Christian faith comes from the Judeo tradition. So all the very first Christians were Jews. Those who were waiting for the Messiah were all Jews. And yet God makes a change at the coming of Jesus. He switches things so that you no longer have to become a Jew in order to be saved. Now you and I as Gentiles can also be saved. 
He says this in Ephesians chapter 2. Remember, speaking of Gentiles, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel and you were a foreigner to the covenants of the promise. You were without hope and you were without God in the world. That's what we had as Gentiles. If you wanted to get close to God, you had to go to Israel. If you wanted to get welcomed into the temple, you had to get circumcised and become a Jew. But all that has changed. That changes here in chapter 11. So that's who he's talking to. He's talking to um, Gentiles in reference to the Jews who have now had their hearts hardened. So that the gospel is extended to you and I as Gentiles. This is what he means in verse 28. Look with me one more time. Chapter 11, verse 28. As far as the gospel is concerned, they, meaning the Jews, are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. We talked about election a little bit last week. God chose the Jewish people. Now let me ask you a question. Does God keep his promises? Okay, not a trick question. Do better than that. Does God keep his promises? Absolutely, he keeps his promises. The problem is that just becoming a Jew doesn't mean that you're saved. There is rather a heart circumcision that needs to happen, that you would belong to God. That makes you a true Jewish person. And so now from Paul's perspective, now that God's affection is sent to the Gentiles, it's now to the Jews to get jealous. What do you mean the Gentiles? Those crummy, stinky Gentiles? They get, they get favor with God? That belongs to us. And so Paul continues here. If you look in verse 29, he says, For God's gift and his call are irrevocable, meaning God will keep his promises. Just as you, this is you and I, Gentiles, who were at one time disobedient to God, have now received, what's your Bible say? There it is. Do you see it? That's the mercy he's talking about. Just as at one time you were disobedient to God, you have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. So too they now have become disobedient disobedient in order that they may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Be careful again, as we talked about election last week, the all here is not mercy on all without exception. It's rather mercy on all without distinction. Mercy on all without exception would mean everybody gets saved. Well, does everybody get saved? Well, that can't be what he means here. So he doesn't mean everybody without exception. He means rather everybody without distinction. God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy, not just on the Jews, also not just on the Gentiles, but on all people. Okay, we would do well to jump right into verse 12 or chapter 12, because this is where the therefore comes from, except there's this beautiful little phrase that comes in between. And I have to give attention to this because immediately as the Apostle Paul recognizes the mercy of God, He almost bursts out into song. Look at verse 33. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him 
And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And the whole church says, Amen. Amen. When we think of the mercy of God and the economy of his graciousness to take that which belonged to one people and now extend it to all people and now therefore extending it to all people, make his appeal again to those who he made his promises to. The apostle Paul says, man, whoever... Whoever gave God anything that God owes you. Do you know what God owes you? It's not mercy. It's justice. And yet he gives you his mercy. This now informs our understanding of chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. So this is the first conclusion that we come to. Being dedicated to God is propelled by focusing on his mercy. We had a, uh, we had a surprise anniversary party for uh, Bruce and Cheryl. Uh, this was a couple months ago. Um, when is your anniversary, Bruce? November 19th. Yeah, well, it wasn't back when we had it, right? Yeah, and uh, I, I remember just the surprise on their face, right? What? What's going on? That's, that's all credit to uh, their daughters for putting that on. That, that's, that's the same face that you and I should make when it comes to the mercies of God. What? I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. The moment that you fail to understand the root of God's grace in your life is how you have now been co-opted by the values of this world because this world says, I am owed things. I am owed rights. That's how the world has trained you to think. But when it comes to God, you come, how? Undeservingly. That's how we come to God. And if you are going to find true dedication to God, because this is the root of it again, Paul says, in view of God's mercy, by looking at God's mercy, that's where you start. Then you offer your bodies that you and I will fail at staying dedicated to God if we do not begin continually at the foot of the cross to see God's love and mercy in our lives. Secondly, is this dedication to God requires the full surrender of our bodies. That is not a popular message today. Dedication to God requires the full surrender surrender of our bodies. This is what Jesus says to the disciples in Mark chapter 8. He called the crowd to them along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. What do you mean by cross? Like a little necklace? Is that what he meant? Like a little little tattoo on your ankle? I got my cross. Is that what he meant? Take up thy cross and follow me for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life, for me, for the gospel, you will save it. Look with me again in Romans chapter 12. In view of God's mercies, he says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. That's a a real key to us understanding this. Not Not as a dead sacrifice, but as a sacrifice that's now made alive. I remember my seminary professor saying the problem with living sacrifices is they keep crawling off the altar. That's why you kill them first. God calls you to remain as a living sacrifice. The other important aspect that we have to catch 
uh, is that construction living sacrifice because you have been made alive in Christ? And this is incumbent upon us to understand the message of the gospel properly. Hear me loud and clear. You do not offer your body to God as a sacrifice in order to receive mercy. Rather, because you have received mercy, you offer your body as a living sacrifice. Does everybody catch the order of that? Well, one of them is completely false. And there's a lot of that in our world today as well. The kind of bootstrap Christianity. You got to do better, right? If you, if you only gave more, then God would really be merciful to you. Do you ever think that? Huh? Be honest. Do you ever have a bad day and think, this is what I deserve. I, you know, I've been doing wrong. And so God's not having, if I, if I just could clean up my act, that's not how God works with you. That's not how God treats us. He's gracious to us. The core of his nature is graciousness to us. In fact, the Bible says that the discipline you feel as a child of his comes from his love for you. God will not give you advanced favor if you give more to church or if you just prayed on your knees harder. It doesn't work like that. You don't offer yourself as a sacrifice in order to get mercy. He gives you mercy and then makes you alive so you become a living Sacrifice. I'll make sure that we're clear on that. Um, the illustration that I thought of is terrible, but I'll share it with you anyways. It's, it's, uh, it's like not dating anybody after you get married. You, 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 don't, you don't stop dating in order to get married. Right? You get married and then you choose out of your love to say, I, f- I forsake all others. Right? It's because of the love. It's because of the promise. It's because of the covenant that you now have that changes your behavior. I don't know if that worked. I don't know if you catch that. But that's the message of the gospel as well. It's your reception of the covenant of God to be brought into union with him that now changes your behavior to live uh, by giving up your bodies. And I, I wrote this down too. What does this have to do with my body? Does that seem strange to anybody else? Look in the, in the text here. It says, offer your bodies. This is why this is crucial for us. And, and this gets into more of a teaching component for you to understand the human creature. God made the human creature in his image and likeness. The likeness that we find in Genesis chapter 1 is that as, as a spirit creature. Did you know that? You're a spirit creature? That's the immaterial part of you. But you're not only spiritual you're also physical so you're like the rest of the animals you're like the rest of god's creation the plants and the trees and the clouds you have a physicality to you as well the human creature needs to see both of these happening in union with one another and it will not suffice for you to hear that the christian faith means well i give you my heart god you god's got my heart that's not all you are is it That's not what the human creature is. You're made of material and immaterial. And you cannot just pledge to God the immaterial and expect that he's not going to want to cash in the material as well. Uh, When I think of this, it's uh, it's like an illustration of somebody who has been promised uh, to to get a a new vehicle. Remember in high school when you got your first car? I got got mine from a guy over in uh, in Iron Mountain. It was a... uh, Five-speed, four-wheel drive Toyota pickup truck. Man, this thing was awesome. It was like a four-wheeler you could drive on the road. Loved that truck. Now, would have it made any sense if I went to him to buy the truck and he just signed the title over to me, gave me the title? 
Here you go. What would I be saying? Dude, where's my truck? <laughs> right? I'm, why, why are you just giving me the title? That, that's fine. Oh, that's yours. It's, it, it, it means it's all yours. That's not the part that I really want. Think about your life. Where's the holdout in your life? Where's the, I'll, I'll give God my heart. He can have my soul, but my body? My body is mine. That'd be like somebody just writing you the title and not giving you actually the physical vehicle. God wants you, all of you, and so being a living sacrifice means that we come to God and we die. We die to ourselves. We die to our old life, our old desires, and you offer to God all that you are. Number three, true dedication to God will result in metamorphosis. It's a good biology term on a Sunday morning. True obedience to God. Uh, I had to reword, reword this phrase a couple of times because I wanted to put should and, uh, and then I put must and that wasn't quite right. Um, it will result in this. The word metamorphosis comes from the Greek word metamorpho. And if you look in, ch- in chapter 12, verse 2, he says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. That's the word. Uh, metamorpho. Morpho mean, meaning shape, the appearance of something. Meta talking about its change. There's been a changing to its shape. There is no better illustration of this than the biologic, biological illustration of a butterfly. Right? What, what, what does a butterfly start out as? A worm. Right? Just a creepy little crawly worm making its way through the dirt and the dust. Just eating whatever it can find to eat. Satisfying all of its own desires. That's what the worm does. You squish them. What does a worm, a caterpillar, what does a caterpillar know of this, the sky? And the clouds and the breeze. It knows nothing of those things until what? Until it forms a chrysalis. And it, I think I've shared this before in church, but it's worth a reminder. When, when, when a caterpillar forms a chrysalis, it becomes kind of deconstructed. It turns into this mush inside of the chrysalis. And all of its body parts get rearranged until at the right timing, it breaks it open. And then for the first time, spreads its wings and now has a completely different nature. I wonder if the very first person who ever saw this was just astounded that the worm went in and what came out? Butterfly came out. We're given a command before this in verse 2. Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. I asked my daughter if I could get some Play-Doh for church. You guys know what Play-Doh is, right? You get to play with Play-Doh on Sunday morning. This word conform means to take the shape of something else. The world around you is going to want to squeeze you into its shape. That's what the time you spend in front of a screen, that's the time that you spend in front of what you read. The time that you use on this earth will begin to shape you according to what it wants you to look like. Paul says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't let it shape you like this, but rather be 
transformed, metamorphosized. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 2. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. Crucified means what? Live, live or die. I've been crucified with Christ, and therefore I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. There is a new life that now belongs to those who are transformed. And this is why I have to phrase it this way. True dedication to God will result in a change of your life. But you know what it won't change in? It won't change in the world's attempt to squeeze you and to conform you and make your mind twisted and perverted to think after its values. You must be transformed. And then you'll get to the result of understanding God's will. So how do we do this? But before we do, this is the, the conclusion we come to, that we come to Jesus and we are now made alive like a butterfly that for the first time comes out of the chrysalis and can soar. Number four is this, dedication to God requires the renewal of our minds. This is an important how step. Look in verse two, one more time. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's a passage in Matthew chapter 16. The disciples have a hope in a Messiah. Um, a Messiah who is going to be this conqueror. That's what they wanted to find. And Jesus comes and he says to them, the son of man must be handed over to the chief priests and the Pharisees and he will be killed by them. And Peter, you know Peter, right? Good old Peter goes over to Jesus, pulls him aside, and Peter tells Jesus, you need to stop talking like that. Wow. Because Peter thought that the Messiah was to be something else. Do you remember this story? Do you remember how this goes? Because Jesus responds to him. It's a little tough moment, right? Jesus says, get behind me, what? Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you have in mind not the things of God, but the things of men. There, there is yet at this moment in Peter's life that transforming that comes through changing how you think and how you understand. And thankfully, through the, through the scriptures, we find over time that there is a newness that's evidenced in Peter's life as well as he writes to encourage the church. The Apostle Paul frames it this way in the book of 2 Corinthians. He says, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The new creation has come. The old has gone. You are brand new if you are in Jesus Christ. And so dedication, right? Not this, I go to church or I pay a tithe, but true dedication requires that our minds become changed. I frame it this way. We come under new management. Who was in charge? <laughs> think, think, think of the time that you spend before Jesus and what you frame in your mind and the pattern of your thoughts but after Jesus, after Jesus, you are now given a new heart, right? This was our passage out of Galatians too. I've been crucified with Christ, so I no longer live. Christ lives in me. He changes my outlook. He changes how I think I have now come under new management. All right, the result of all this comes to the last one. Dedication to God will result in a discernment of his will. 
For those who truly are dedicated to Jesus Christ, a dedication of their lives to say it's about him, it's not about me, you now will be afforded the ability to understand what his will is because you will have renewed your mind and you'll be able to recognize the new marching orders that come from God. Look with me again in chapter 12, Romans 12, in verse 2. Then you will be able to test and approve what his will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You heard the passage that Sandy read for us out of Philippians. Paul writes to the church in Philippi. He says, this is my prayer for you, that you will continue to abound in love and that you will come to the knowledge of God, that you will grow in your knowledge of God more and more. And therefore, you will come to this same result, that you will be able to understand and discern God's will. So what do we do with this today? Um, The question that I thought of is, and the question I would encourage you to ask yourself, on what grounds could somebody accuse you of being a Christian? In the early church, there was... um, there, there was a, a litany of accusations that came against Christians. They, they called them atheists. If you followed Jesus, you were called an atheist. Does that make any sense? I, I totally believe in God. Why would you be calling me an atheist? The reason was because in Rome, how many gods were there? Lots and lots of gods. So if you deny all those gods, they think of you as just as being an atheist. They would call us cannibals. Because when we would worship together, we would say that we were consuming the bread, bread, which is the body, and the cup, which represents his blood. And they looked at that and they said, what? I don't want any part of them. Nuts, those Christians are. They called us incestuous because those we were married to, when we would introduce them, we said, this is my sister Emily. Yeah, your sister? That was the accusation that came to Christians, and they called us subversive. Because if you lived in Rome, do you know who you served? Caesar. Caesar is king. The Jews even say it at the crucifixion of Jesus. We have no king but Caesar. But Christians, Christians say we serve the Lord of lords. And so they saw us as subversive to the nation. What could you be accused of? Um, If you could hold your spot in in Romans for a moment. And let's turn, just as we wrap things up here, to the Gospel of Luke. Please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. I want you to see a story of God's mercy and how he gives it in contrast to a culture that's actually very similar to ours. For the Jews and the Gentiles, and we now as being Gentiles who have received mercy... Luke chapter 14, look with me in starting in verse 15. Luke 14, starting in verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, Come! For everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. Does that look like someone who's devoted? Look, the table's been set. Come on in. 
Look at the response. The first one said, I've just bought a field. I must first go and see it. Please excuse me. Verse 19, another said, I just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Verse 20, still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered, that his, ser- ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of these men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. This is the mercy of God that has been extended to you and to me as Gentiles. The Jews were the ones who were invited and they said, you know, I'd, I'd love to come, but I got, you know, don't, don't, think, don't think I'm not uh, wanting to come to church. I just got these other things I got to do. So I return one more time to Kyle's question. What does following Jesus cost you? Because if you're not being a sacrifice, a living sacrifice for Jesus, it may instead be the case that you're just a fan and you're really not a follower. It may in fact be the case that you don't have any change in your life. There's no transformation from what you once were. You're just sort of fooling yourself. It may in fact be that your body still belongs to yourself and your mind is left without renewal. And if all of that is true of you, I submit to you, you have no idea what God's will is. And that's not where we want to land today. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out for just a moment. Because the answering of this question, what is God's will for my life? I have put at the bottom of your sermon notes two little sliders. One that deals with your body and one that deals with your mind. And I want you to just take a a moment. Humor me here, all right? Find somebody with a pen or a pencil. And I want you to make a little, little hash mark somewhere as to how much of your body you've given as a living sacrifice to God and how much of your mind you're actively working towards renewal. Now, let me just pause before you all circle 100%. <laughs> Liars, right? Uh, nobody gets 100%. You wouldn't need to come to church if it was 100%. But what I really want to encourage you towards is an honest evaluation of your life. How, how much am, am I really offering as a living sacrifice when it comes to my body. How much of my mind? So you, you're, you're on there somewhere. So take a moment just to give some reflection to that and see if you can mark down where you land on those. And as I know it's not 100%, I pray it's not zero, but no matter where it is, I want to offer you a prescription this morning. You know, like you go to the doctor, what do I do? I'm not, I'm not hitting 100% at this part of my life. Where can I turn? In fact, you um, would probably do well to remember this is what the world wants to do to you. Right? Like that Plato smashed down, continuing to conform you. How do I get out of this, Pastor? I feel it. I continually feel the false message that my body's my own. And then when it comes to following Jesus, if I'm honest this morning, you know what? I'm more inclined to go try out the oxen I just bought than come to church. I'm I'm more excited about the relationships that I have, and I really can't come to serve God. And I am again being squished 
by the mold and the values of this world. And if that's you this morning, here's my prescription for you. You need to return again to the foot of the cross and the source of mercy. Remember, that's what Paul tells us this morning. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies. And so if for you, renewal of your mind, if for you, the offering of your body and all that you have, if that is being fought for by this world and by the spirit, here's the answer. It's the blood of Jesus. That's the answer. I want to conclude with the words that come from the hymn writer that focuses our attention once more to the cross of Jesus Christ as he pens these words. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand. It's shadow of a mighty rock within weary land. It's a home within the wilderness, a rest upon the way from the burning of the noontide heat and the burden of the day. Upon the cross of Jesus, my eye at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my stricken heart with tears, two wonders I confess. The wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. I take, O cross, thy shadow from my abiding place. I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of your grace. Content to let the world go by. To know no gain or loss. My sinful self is my only shame. My glory. All the cross. As we want to follow Jesus. And be his representatives on earth. I pray that you find success by humility and returning again to the seat of mercy where that blood has been poured out for you and for me. Let's pray this morning.